Hello everybody and welcome to What Will The Smart Party Do? We're back for another week and we're talking about game systems. Uh, perhaps not necessarily our favourites, but some we found interesting. And uh, thanks to the D20 show who uh, popped that question to us on Twitter. So as always folks, if you've got any other interesting questions you'd like us to talk about, drop us a line there. But it's not just me. As usual, I've got my good friend Baz. How are you doing Baz? Hello, I'm really good, thank you. I'm very excited to be talking about systems. Systems are doing it for themselves. <laughs> a little bit of a song there. Oh, well, That's how excited I didn't realise we're doing a karaoke show. <laughs> it's a mechanic that if you can uh, if you can state your action in the in the theme of a, a song, a famous song, you get plus two to your next roll. That's pretty good. There's also a game called Sea Dracula. Uh, playing, we play an animal lawyer trying to present their case in court. We have to do it through dance. <laughs> and I've not made that up that is actually a real game you can go and google it if you want um, see Dracula so if you like popping air babies in your role playing then uh, go look that game up immediately uh, awesome I presume though from your list of five you're going to have um, something a bit more traditional for us Baz what, what's, the, what's your first game and or mechanic that you found interesting top five mechanics right it's hastily scribbling out the list that had B.A. Baracus on it Chewbacca and Kaylee out of Serenity <laughs> Um, <laughs> better get down to stuff. That's quite good, Baz. Well <laughs> and, and notice how I'd run out of uh, run out of mechanics that I knew after three. Which <laughs> I was, I, I was after that. I was reduced to googling stuff, and I thought, "Oh, tails out of Sonic the Hedgehog." That's a mechanic, right? But no, oh, that's God. never going to work. Uh, so yeah, back in gaming, where I'm on st- slightly firmer ground. Uh, okay, so top five mechanics. Stuff I really like in games. It is pretty trad of my list, actually, funnily enough. Is, isn't that inevitable, though, if we're talking about mechanics? Because uh, don't trad games have more mechanics than not trad games? Maybe? A little bit? It depends on how um, you define mechanic. Yeah, in, in sort of uh, real nuts and bolts terms, I think. Uh, I think there's still good structures and rules and things around the more indie games. Or small press, uh, but it's a lot easier to work out like, is this initiative mechanic good rather than whose turn is it to speak? Sure, uh, and do that based on how the table feels. That doesn't feel like a mechanic as much, but um, yeah, there is stuff there. But yeah, mechanics, I think we, we generally lean towards the more traditional side of the, the scale, to be honest. Yeah, okay, sure, do yeah, because I was getting myself tied up in knots a little bit about um, is like, say, uh, a rule and a mechanic the same thing, and I've kind of decided I don't think they are. Um, because it could be dressed up in a couple of different ways, but you could have something like in Apocalypse World where it says, um, you know, make loads of maps. Um, is that a mechanic? Is it, or is it a rule, or is it something else completely? And I think it's a cool idea and a cool thing to do. And I suppose it's a rule in that if you don't do that, then you're already kind of hacked it. But that's, that doesn't sound like a mechanic. Has it, got, has it got to have a number in it? It probably does a little bit um, to count. So all my stuff's got numbers in. You'll be glad to hear. So, um, well, good. Uh, in no particular order, speaking of numbers, starting with number five, um, I've gone for, I've gone for stuff that is a little bit controversial. Probably not to thee and me or to our loyal listener, um, but I really like step dice in Earth Dawn. And <laughs> <laughs> I've deliberately avoided Earth Dawn because I suspected you might have. Yeah, list. and and the reason I think it's got, well, I know it's controversial, is that. Um, Oh, look, our love for Earthdawn knows no bounds and we bang on about it all the time. So let's not do that again. But most of the people who liked Earthdawn probably didn't really like the rule system that much. And it was one of those games, I think, where people wanted to love the setting, didn't get on with the system quite so much. And and certainly there's been a bunch of new additions of it ever since and, and new flavours of ways of playing Earthdawn that have tried to dispense with the step system straight away. I thought it yeah. was really good. I really liked it. And, and it kind of appealed to me almost immediately and I kind of wished I'd seen it in other games I was really desperate at one point for a science fiction version that used the same kind of mechanical mm. underpinning I think that'd be good so just for sorry to interject just mm. for our loyal listeners who don't know what the step system is you just want to give us a quick description of how it works well of course our loyal listeners will have merely forgotten how it works because they will all have a copy <laughs> of earth dawn that they maybe haven't looked at in a little while because it's in a glass case as it should be as the greatest game oh yeah that makes sense. so that makes more sense so purely for their benefit and maybe their younger siblings who haven't been able to pick up the world's finest role-playing game yet uh <laughs> <laughs> say what it is right so the step system is 
I think it came from DC Heroes, of all things, or, or something along those lines, because same game designer, Greg Gordon. Don't hear a lot about him anymore. Don't know why that is. Anyway, here's what he did. He came up with a scale of numbers that is just linear, like 1 through 10 through 20, etc. And he worked out um, what combinations of dice you would roll to have those numbers come out of the average. Now, my memory is not that great, but I bet you can do it. But it would start off with a D4, then a D6, then a D8, then a D10. And you would work up a ladder of dice combinations. And then once you got to D20s, you would add in some other ones. So, And then eventually you'd have two D6 or a D8 and a D4. And you'd have a little chart. And it looked just like a ladder from one. I think it went up to about 30 on the character sheets. And it was simply combinations of dice that you would roll. So if you were like um, skill rank five in something, you would have... A certain combination of dice to roll and if you were skill rank seven if you were two better than that you would look on your chart for a different combination of dice to roll which is kind of not unlike how you do it in savage worlds in some ways although you know you're mm. usually using two dice for that but it's similar um and that doesn't sound so bad does it it's fine but people really, really reacted quite strongly against it although I thought it was a much overused term I thought it was elegant and the reason I thought it was elegant was because it worked on on averages. And as a as a GM of Earthdawn, it became really apparent to me that if I wanted to, I didn't have to roll dice at all. Because if my Orc Scorcher did like damage step eight, I could just deal eight damage without having to roll the dice. And that would actually be pretty fair. And I could compare an eight against a five, and I wouldn't really have to get too worried about all the different dice and stuff. It It would be pretty obvious to me what was going on. So... What used to throw people, of course, was that if you got like a bonus to your roll, if you got like plus three to an action, you wouldn't roll your dice and add three to it, like you do these days in most D20 iterations. You would actually look at your step on the little chart, move up three spots, and then go back to find a new combination of dice. That seemed to throw people, although I quite liked it. I quite Because yeah. dice are good, polyhedrals are good, we've all got them, and... Don't forget, this game was a reaction to D&D, really. It was like, try to improve and be the original heartbreaker on it. And I liked the way that it actually gave you something to do with D12s, which are the best dice of all. Um, yes. And so, I think... Yeah, go oh, on. No, 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 what was your no, take, no, mate? No, so you good. played it with me, didn't you? So. Yeah, yeah, and, and with other people as well, because it's the finest role-playing game known to man, so obviously played it a lot. But yeah, step seven, as everybody knows, is D12. Yes. And if you went up three steps to step ten, that's a D10 and a D6, as we all know. Um, so yes, for, I, I liked that. I liked doing that thing. But I think for other people, going from, say, a D12 to rolling a D10 and a D6, uh, some people find that awkward. They're like, oh, why do I have to roll different dice? I've just got used to you know what I need to roll to hit. Why have I got to change it now? I found that really stressful for some reason. So I think it came down to whether you actually like using all the dice you've got in your polyhedral set or if you get upset that you have to try and remember what you're doing or use something different and you're scared mm. of polyhedrals. But I think for hardcore gamers, you, you know, it's quite a, a nice thing. And a sort of like subset of that, which was quite amusing, is people would try and get their favourite steps. So you sometimes might not want to accept a bonus or try and get a slight penalty or something because you wanted to roll a D12 and a D10 rather than a D20 and a D4, which is the next step, mm. and that kind of thing. And there's little wars went on between players about what was the best step and all that kind of stuff. Um, so if you're a nerd and into your dice and like rolling different stuff and working at averages and look at the variance of rolling a D20 compared to two mid-sized dice or something like that, I think it's all really good fun. But I can mm. understand why people who aren't quite into that as much are more interested in the... ROWL playing and not so much the uh, you know uh, sorry the ROLE playing rather than the ROWL playing probably didn't like it as much because they just wanted a set set of dice to roll and get on with it but um, as we like game in our role playing games I think for us it was uh, particularly funky mm. well one of the really cool things about it is um, you don't see this happen very often but it referred you to a chart now game designers moved on a lot and and having to refer to a chart is seen largely as the purview of the GM in most trad games anyway and the idea of a chart that the players would look at has really been poo-pooed but but I came from a tradition where you had a little line across the bottom of your character sheet back in advanced Dungeons and Dragons days that had the armor class and the number you needed to roll to hit on it and mm -hmm. um and sometimes you really miss that because Although you may have to go and, and grab a, a couple of dice out of, a, out of a little pool, 
the number you needed to roll was kind of right there on your sheet. So you could look it up and it's unlike games where you have to... I mean, even now when I teach modern D&D to people, which I do quite a lot, I often find they roll the D20. I know they've got plus two to the roll. They roll a 17. I ask them what they go and they go, 17. And I have to constantly remind them to <laughs> to add the plus two on. Add the two. And this yeah. could be like hours into the game, you know, the hundredth time they've rolled that dice. But whenever I've played games where there's a little chart on the character sheet, people seem quite happy to run their finger up and down it and find the number. So I, yeah. I think that maybe some, of the, maybe some of the resistance to it was quite theoretical, as in, oh, I'm not going to like that. But like, actually, like a lot of the other mechanics that I'm picking on tonight, they, they really help play. And actually around the table, it simply wasn't much of an issue. And in fact, actually added to the fun for me. So I really like that step mechanic just because it gave you something to do with your hands, frankly. And, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a really big tactile element to role-playing gaming that sometimes we forget about. And it's not all purely theatre of the mind. Even the most ardent hippie story gamer loves shouting out crit at the top of their voice when they roll a maximum on a dice. So, you know, and and step dice. Oh man, that D twenty D four combo you alluded to. I, I've lost count of the amount of times the D four outscored the D twenty, <laughs> which <laughs> shouldn't be possible. You going to say that? <laughs> <laughs> but when your D twenty yeah, actually dash, performed, dash oh, up, that was more like it. Yeah. 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 And that's why the sort of, yeah so the sort of um, the step number being the average was slightly off. So for example, uh, step eight is two d six, and mm. the average on two d six is a seven. But it, because dice can explode, that's how the designer explained it away, saying, "Well, occasionally you'll get an extra six on your d six and roll up a bit more, so I have to move mm. the average up a bit." So that all made sense to me. I thought, yeah, I, I think you're quite right. Um, seeing Pete's little face when he got a bonus and someone like was changing dice, it was like, "Oh, what dice is it? What, what, what are you rolling now?" And you know the excitement and. Uh, just the, the pure variance of the different dice types and everything else. I think it's all, all good fun if you're yeah. a gamer. Correct. Yeah. So that's that's my in at number five with a bullet, mate. So um, <laughs> And it's not on your list, which is good, because it could very easily have been <laughs> two sets of top five that look like, a well, a top five. So uh, what's your one, mate? Where, where are you in? Well, uh, again, in no particular order, I'm going to segue into Legend of the Five Rings here, okay. talking fives. Um, uh, and it also fits because... Um, it's another system that some people don't like. So mm. a lot of people don't like rolling bunches of D10s for some reason. Mm-hmm. Or they don't like rolling them and keeping some of them. Uh, they don't like necessarily rolling up either and like the, the explosions of dice I've just mentioned. But I really like it because um, in a lot of systems, you can have a stat that governs a skill and there's not necessarily a relationship or it doesn't make that big a difference. Or it turns out that once you've got your decks 14, you've got a plus one forever in deck stuff. And that's it, and it's all it does. And it doesn't really do anything else ever again. Um, or uh, like in Savage Worlds, if your uh, agility is a certain level, it just affects how many skill points you have to spend, but doesn't necessarily do a lot with your fighting skill when you actually try and hit someone with an agility-based skill, for example. Uh, whereas in Five Rings, uh, you have five different rings, air, earth, and whatever else, and they're made up of different stats. So uh, fire has things like agility, and uh, water's got stamina, I think, off the top of my head. Um, and whatever your stat is, you take that as a bunch of dice, and you pick your skill and roll that as a bunch of dice, and you roll them all together and keep a number of them equal to your stat. So I like it if for no other reason that it's getting two bunches of stuff together to make a big pool, uh, and your stats actually carry on making a difference throughout the lifetime of the game. Um a lot of people didn't like it because they couldn't work out what they thought they might roll then. So if you're rolling, uh, say, six, keep three, so you're rolling six D10s, keeping the best three, they might explode, you need to get a number, and you target number 20, what are your chances of getting it? That's quite tough for a lot of people to get, mm. as opposed to, say, Cthulhu, where you've got 50% in library use, and you're pretty sure you're going to be 50-50 on finding that book. Yeah. There is a bit of a, a, a sort of rule of thumb, if people don't know. I'll, I'll spoil it here in case it's not in the new editions of the rules, but... If you've got a kept dice, count as a five. And if you've got an unkept dice, count as a two. And that'll give you a handy number to think what you should probably roll. So six keep three is uh, 21 is your average. So getting that target of a 20 is probably fair enough on six keep three. Uh, so that's an easy way of doing it for people who don't like the maths. But again, I think some people don't like pools of dice for whatever reason. Uh, some people don't like having to add up or take away and leave some. But again, to me, for the, the gamer in me and the wanting to, uh, you know, 
angle the mechanics, see if I, do I want some more unkept dice, or would I try and get one more kept, or you know, work out the different combinations and what's good and what's bad and what I like the look of. Uh, all good fun. It's still like that, that hand, that thing of having a handful of dice as well, rather than just rolling a d20 or 2d10, you've got a big bunch of dice in your hand and get to roll them and everybody like leans over the table to see how many 10s you've got and that kind of stuff. So a really good, um, good common sense mechanic in terms of the numbers on your sheet always came into use and you got to roll lots of dice. So they are. That's why I like that. Well, there you go. I, I didn't play Legend of the Five Rings very much. I played 7th C, which to my knowledge is identical, I think, from a rule set perspective. Very similar, yeah. yeah. Very similar. So I, I like handfuls of dice, actually, except when I'm GMing, and then I don't like it at all because I might have six NPCs who want to <laughs> fire matchlocks, and I'd rather roll six dice. But anyway, um, the weird thing about the roll and keep stuff, because I'm with you, mate. I, I, I found it quite intuitive, actually. I could definitely, you know, bigger is better, so more dice is better than fewer dice, and more kept dice is better than less kept dice. So that made sense to me. Well, it did take a little bit of working out, though. That little bit of maths you've just given me there, I didn't know that. And I think I would have found that really helpful because one of the things, if I remember correctly, is you also had to pre-state there was a bit of a gamble mechanic in there about how many raises you thought you would get before you rolled the dice. Yeah. So correct me if I've got this wrong, but if your target number set at 15 for a success, you could say, I'm going to shoot for a 20, raising it by five. And I think it was fives every time. And if I get that, I'll get more. So to to be able to to weigh up the risk and reward, you you kind of did have to know whether the dice were on your side or not. Um, and I never really knew, so it made me play conservatively, which in a swashbuckling game like Seven C was didn't really suit. Um, and or yeah, then I would take stupid risks. I didn't really couldn't really figure it out. None of this took long to figure out, honestly. I mean, none of it did. And and I reckon if you've listened to your explanation of the dice to this point, you are educated enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I but I appreciate that people people did rebel against it. I mean, you can't please everyone, can you? Um, can't remember if it's in the new Seventh C. I think something very much like it is. It's probably not exactly as as simple and as straightforward and common sense as as in the initial editions. But yeah, I thought that was a great mechanic. Yeah, well, my, my top tip for any GMs out there, I think, are in Seventh C or Five Rings or anything like that game is um, it's pretty easy to put an Excel spreadsheet together. Well, if you know maths, you know Excel, which I do. So maybe it's not if you're, a, I don't know, <laughs> if you're a farmer, maybe then you're not, and your maths isn't great, then maybe it isn't. But uh, you can get these things online thanks to the internet. Uh, and what I used to do was put together a bunch of stats for basically automated rolls of four keep three or five keep two or whatever. Right. And just have big, you know, a big sheet full of rolls. Like I do for Feng Shui, we have to work out loads of actual values for 20 MOOCs. Mm. You just pre populate a formula and get it to print loads out for you. So again, from the GM point of view, you don't have to roll like loads and loads of D10s if you don't want to. You can just pre-generate them using whatever, a Perl script, an Excel formula, something that someone else has done off the internet, uh, and just get a big printout. And then when five mooks attack, you just tick them through on the five keep threes and see what they got. Mm. So if you, if you want if you want the like the easy and you could do that if you're a player to be honest if you didn't want to roll the dice you could just print your sheet off and go through them in order. But um, yes, I like rolling the dice. So there you are. Um, and it had good stuff around um, you could spend void points as well which would give you an extra rolled and kept dice or do other things for you uh, and like I say you can you can pick extra raises if you want to try and go for extra damage so I think that was the other contentious point is that some people want to roll against the target number and then see if they get any raises afterwards or a better result or mm-hmm. get that crit or whatever it is uh, and I know there's a lot of resistance to I have to try and say well I'll do really well in advance and try and hit it and if I don't then I've messed it up Especially when they get in that sweet spot, which is if they hadn't called a raise, they would have succeeded because they did the missed. Yeah, people tend to get very upset about that. Yeah, well, that's game, but you know, <laughs> it's a different way of doing it. Suck it up. Sometimes you miss, otherwise, while well, you're rolling dice in the first place. I tell you what, that was the decade of D10s, wasn't it? Because this was kicking off about the same sort of time as World of Darkness, and uh, and I'd mm-hmm. quite happily survived for twenty years with my wax crayoned in set of polyhedrals, and then all of a sudden. I think we all had like tubes of D10s in various speckly colours and so on. And you got yeah. like, yeah, your five rings dice set and your seventh seed dice set and then one for each of the World of Darkness games you're playing. And dice pools were big for a while. Uh, mm. I, I, I think they may have gone away a little bit now. Oh, that's a bit of a shame. Everyone likes dice. Yeah, quite. Okay, so what else have you got then? Bass, what's your number four? Have you got something else with lots of dice in? Yeah. 
So speaking of dice, um, I'm going to go with one that is, if it ain't on your list, I've misjudged you massively, but I'm getting in first, so you'll have to rapidly reappraise your list. So speaking of dice, I'm going with um, playing cards in Savage Worlds. How dare you. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll I'll tee it up, mate, and then you can tell me whether you think it's good or not. So, um, right, Savage Worlds, uh, really good, pulpy, fast, furious a uh, generic system um, and one of the things it does very very well it was totally unique when it introduced this I think it still is I can't think of many games that do this is it uses all your nice polyhedrals and your kind of standard stuff for resolving actions although it's got another sexy little mechanic but I won't go into that called the wild die but anyway the bit I really like is it uses playing cards for initiative and decks of cards are second only in coolness to dice in my opinion and decks of cards are really tactile and good fun and the really clever thing about using cards for initiative is you simply deal out cards to everybody around the table yourself included if you're the gm or you get a card monkey to do it everybody has a card monkey you don't have to do this yourself as a gm you get someone else to do it so deal out all the cards and they're all face up so everybody in the table has a visual clue as to what order people are going in which is quite clever because not many other initiative systems do that. The GM's always jotting it down on a bit of scratch paper and they're like the gatekeeper for who's up next. So it's all very visual. There's never any ties uh, because it counts down and it goes in reverse suits order alphabetically, I think. Yeah, reverse holding a lot of it. Yep, and that doesn't take very long to figure out and you hand your cards back in as you take your turn, so that's easy. Um, And you can key special abilities of stuff like jokers, so there's a little mechanic within that which is pretty much random but if a joker gets dropped you get like a you get a burst of bonuses like you can do some more damage you can do some more stuff there's just stuff you can do when you when you get delta joker and there's other little key abilities that might mean you get two cards and pick the best of those two or so on and so forth it's incredibly tactile really visual and actually makes a really cool little game out of something that is usually admin in most other games um, yeah. and Roll for Initiative is supposed to be one of the most exciting battle cries in your evening and um, but often it puts a real kind of crunch of gears in the game as you move from something more narrative to something more combat but Savage Worlds just takes that, that point of the game and makes even more of a game out of it and I think it's really clever so I love it Yeah I agree uh, and it feels a bit like uh, that when people crane in to see what the uh, the good role is going to be it feels similar when the, the combat that you're in is getting really crucial, uh, and you're all running out of like bennies or fate chips or whatever it is, and you, you know you need to you need to make sure that someone goes first and gets that bad guy before he deals out any more damage, kind of thing. And everybody will lean over to see what cards are being flopped, and there'll be jeers as the card monkey delivers the wrong card to the player and a better card to the adversary, and that kind of thing. And a joker comes, everybody thinks, oh thank god for that, and cheers and claps and thinks it's amazing and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's the festival of the game as opposed to being an admin task. So I'll jump in with with my sort of one there, because I was going to say specifically Deadlands. Ooh. Um, so yeah, Classic Savage Deadlands. Worlds came really. Uh, no, <laughs> Deadlands reloaded. <laughs> so as I was about to say, Savage Worlds really came from Deadlands, which had the cards and the dice, but it had too many cards, and you got multiple actions and too many dice of different types all at once, and everything was too random. So you could end up drawing a pistol and then waiting for literally half an hour of read time while everybody else had their go, and then your second card came up and you could actually shoot someone or maybe cock your pistol that round. So it was all a bit of a mess. Um, the designer printed some notes when he did Savage Worlds, which was like, sorry guys, Deadlands was a bit shit. I've sorted it out now, though. don't worry, here's Savage Worlds. <laughs> so that's good. Anyone who still thinks classics is best disagrees with the guy who wrote the game. So that's, you know, go away and think about that for a minute. Uh, so, Savage Worlds is definitely better, and the thing about Deadlands particularly, Deadlands Reloaded, um, is that the the cards make a lot of sense there, because it's kind of a cowboy game. It's, a, it's the weird west, the strange and supernatural things happening in the background, but ultimately, um, it's kind of a bit like Mavericks. So you go into saloon, and there's people playing cards, and the piano player stops and looks over his shoulder, and somebody's selling rock gut whiskey and all that kind of stuff. So, to involve cards in the game as well really adds to the theme. And uh, for your bennies and inverted commas, you've got fate chips, which come in different colours. So they all go in a Stetson if you've got one, or a bag, or whatever. But it's good if you can find a cowboy hat. And you pull out your luck chips that have different 
abilities depending on what colour they are out of a hat every time you get one. And again, there's that bit of a, you've got a stack of chips in front of you, so it feels like you're around a poker table. Different colours have different values literally in the game. Um, so I think all that kind of really adds to the theme of the game, for Deadlands particularly. It still works for the other games Savage Worlds has, like Pirates or whatever else, but I think particularly in Deadlands, it just it's a mechanic that also fits the theme of the game that you're playing, which I think just adds all to it. You know? mm. Uh, and then you have cool stuff like the hucksters who can cast magic but disguise it as playing cards. They can get extra power by doing a deal with the devil. So you have to make a hand of cards based on a you know a roll you make and stuff like that, and try and beat this man or two that's trying to give you power but also take you over and all that kind of stuff. So there's all bits within the game of Deadlands which really make it fit in. So yes, hooray for Savage Worlds and particularly in Deadlands Reloaded, I think. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, agree, agree, agree. Um, and also just to squeezing a 5.a off the back of that it's just come to me i quite like cards in castle falkenstein for exactly the same reason that you mentioned is that there's probably in fact there's definitely better mechanical rigor in other systems but using playing cards in in a victorian society game just fits in with the setting and you know gentlemen use cards and rogues play with dice and in dull bits in the game you could knock off a hand of whist in between other things so you know <laughs> it, that was really that's really cool if you could tie into the mechanics because like with your Deadlands example clearly your bennies are going to be poker chips right because you would use that yeah. or, or maybe bullet casings but that's the first thing yeah. you do you go and get kit for your game and I always applaud props and kit for games quite right too I agree um, so do you want me to roll into another one go on do yeah do go? it roll up mate your, your last choice exploded and you can have another roll <laughs> I'll just have one roll then uh, and go for the one roll engine Boo. so there's, um, there's, there's it's on your list isn't it <laughs> no it's not no, but there's a good right, reason good. why it's not we it's not like very it. good ah oh, right good so we've got some contention <laughs> that's alright the, uh, the famed game author Neil Gow, I love that because he thinks we agree too much. I agree. So the one roll engine, there's 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 good and bad things about it. Correct. Um, so it's the system that is used for godlike, uh, playing talented individuals, superheroes in World War II, uh, for monsters and other childish things where you play a kid and or his, his monster that lives under the bed, uh, and rain, a fantasy sort of setting that uh, you sort of have uh, some stats for your company or pirate fleet or whatever it is as well and, and there's, there's various different iterations of it um, but I like it because it does all kinds of things all in one roll so you roll your well you state what you're going to try and do and you go in like a reverse brains plus sense or whatever the stats are order so that the guy who's slowest has to say what he's going to do first so the people can see that before they decide what they want to do then you roll roll dice at the same time and depending on how uh, wide your roll is how many of the same number you roll on your big pile of d10s hooray we're rolling big bunches of d10s again Baz mm. um they go in that order, and if you get sh- you know shot or hit or something, it might affect your action and all the rest of it. There's lots of neat-sounding mechanics as well. So if you want to uh, do a multi-action, if you want to do two things, you have to get two pairs in your roll, so two sixes or two fours or whatever it is, uh, but you drop a dice when you set before you roll it. Mechanically, that actually is quite tough and doesn't work out as neatly as you think it should, but when you're reading the book, it sounds amazing, which is probably where you're going to lead to. So, God, I'll let you jump in with some <laughs> critique now before I steal your thunder, because well, I can see you getting excited about it. Yeah, um, I, I, you know what I'm going to say, because it is, it's, it's kind of the opposite of the stuff I talked about a minute ago. It's clever as anything. There's no doubt about it. I, I read Godlike like you did, mate, and I thought, this looks amazing. It's, it's got a really clever, clever dice mechanic. And there's no doubting it's tactile. There's no doubting that there's enormous fun to be had from building sets and and lining up your dice and turning them around and putting them all together. And um, and you know and similarly, I, I don't know if you mentioned it yet, but everybody rolls them all together as well. So it, it really yes. is a one roll engine, and five players might roll simultaneously. So you could have 40, 50 dice spread around the table. That's it's all super cool, but I think it is clever clever as opposed to being clever so let me just unpack that for a minute <laughs> sorry there's a, there's a mistake on the line <laughs> oh dear um yeah so it's it's kind of enthralled to itself so one roll engine very clever good name good tagline and it makes it sound like this is going to be a really efficient way to play because you'll only have to roll once but that isn't necessarily the case so it's not it's not particularly fast 
I don't think it says it's going to be fast, but it kind of makes you think that it might be because it's just a single role to to adjudicate so much stuff. But it's not particularly fast. And also, I think there are just some circumstances where two roles would just be better. And it will never do that because then it won't be called the one-role engine. So I think it shoehorns itself into situations sometimes that aren't quite right. And you're going to ask me for an example, and I can't think of one off the top of my head because I'm rubbish. But you know, I suppose in a trad game, it would be you'd roll to attack and roll for damage. And it's not that because one roll engine does it a bit better. But it's it's painted itself into a bit of a corner to try and keep its unique selling point going. Um, I'll think of a better example, which is one I remember from Godlike, is that you've got all of your senses. Um, and it just does the ludicrous thing of making taste something that you can invest points in. Um, at the same ability that you can put into, say, for example, seeing things, because that's a sense as well. And, you know, do I really want to put three dice into touching? Well, I'm not sure that I do. But anyway, that's a different matter. But I just think it's slightly too clever and it's full of really good advice on how to not let people get away with putting multiple hard dice in and stuff like that, for instant kill shots. And I think if you've got to put that sort of advice in your own rule book please don't break this game, it's really easy, then maybe it should have been designed more rigorously? Uh, yeah, well, I think it was designed with a lot of rigor. It's just that the way it plays isn't uh, intuitive for a lot of people and you've got to approach it in a certain way. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You can't just rock up and play it and it'll all work out all right. I think that's probably what you do. There's, I won't say it's fragile necessarily, but it is. it requires certain handling. You have to put the right rubber gloves on and the goggles, safety goggles and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I know what you mean. If I was going to run it at a convention, I'd want to build the characters specifically myself so that I knew they worked properly and well balanced with each other and all that kind of stuff. Um, I have seen it played or played in games of it at conventions where I thought, oh, good, one roll engine, I love this. Let's mm. let's all roll dice together and then what happens is everybody rolls individually on their own. And that's part of the, the danger with it is that players aren't used to just rolling dice and leaving them on the table and seeing what happens. They kind of wait till it's their turn and want to roll some dice. So yeah. as soon as you say, Pete, what are you doing? Before you know it, that guy's picked his dice up and rolled them again. It's like, no, what you leave them on the table. That's fine. Mm. So that there's a certain way you've got to play in terms of, it's all written out of the book, but it's just not the way that most people play role-playing games. And it's difficult for people to to stop and just think about it. And uh, I think we want that kind of visceral fun of, I've rolled the dice, so I've played my cards, so now I want something to happen. And perhaps people don't get as excited when they roll the dice and have to wait five minutes to see what happened. Mm because they rolled particularly badly compared to what everybody else did or not as wide or whatever it is. So um, I, I think I needed to mention it because I think it's got some good stuff in there. Uh, and one of the uh, sort of adjacent things probably is that it has things like one-roll adventures. So you roll a mm. bunch of dice, then consult some tables, and that gives you some adventure ideas based on what you rolled, or you know, one-roll uh, NPCs. So I think all that bit of it, uh, still means that in those books there's some good stuff you can get out of it. I think I, I don't want to argue too much with it because I, I do agree there are there are issues still, and I think it, it works better with say three or four players rather than trying to handle six players at once due to the amount of dice on the table and all the rest of it and comparing different sets that people have got. But I think there's enough gold in there that it's worth having a dig about and picking some bits out that you like. To be completely fair to it, I think it was probably a little bit ahead of its time. Because what you've just said there about it being better with two or three players, that wasn't the way that we played when One Roll Engine yeah. first came out. Your convention game, traditionally at that point, would have had a GM and six players, almost mm -hmm. entirely. Um, and that was kind of like the the average, perhaps, in, in people's homes. And I'm just thinking now, looking at modern games, um, looking at stuff like the new Star Wars games that Fantasy Flight put out, they're essentially a One Roll Engine as well, where you're interpreting a handful of dice to see what you're getting out of those. I think games probably have trimmed it down to maybe three, four, five players at the max most of the time. And and games are also slowing down a little bit, perhaps, to just get a little bit more story and interpretation out of it. I am intrigued enough, because I haven't looked at it in a long while, to go back and look at One Roll Engine, because it may just have been a little bit not the right place at the right time. But certainly... Yeah, there is no doubting that the game systems, or sorry, the game books that had one roll engine bolted into them were amazing and remain so to this day. Godlike is superheroes in World War II, but a million times better than I can explain it in a podcast. Um, and all of the other games that came after it, often using superheroes too, are just done with such a, such a sense of imagination 
Um, Greg Stoltze has done a lot of the writing for it and his stuff just just leaps off the page and makes you want to play it. Um, maybe it is time for me to go back and have a look, another look at One Roll Engine and you know stuff like Rain, which I never played back in the day, which does companies and kingdoms and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's still One Roll Engine is still a, a very much a thing. And it's all getting published and there's an awful lot of stuff out there for it. And it's it's really been untapped by me in a long time. So I might go back and have a look, mate. Have another see. Yeah, we should do that. Pick a small group and give it a go. Mm. And I think you're right. The the books are great. Um, so Wild Talents is the one that we didn't mention, which is yeah. just superheroes, superheroes, which I think was co-written by Kenneth Height, who did the more of the less of the system and more of the yeah. stuff in the background, I think, if I remember. But there's a great full-color art play. All, all of them look beautiful as well. They're all great. Of uh, kind of like seventy superheroes, and ones with mm. a big afro and stuff like that, but it's, they, they still do like cool kind of gritty superheroes as well. And uh, a lot of the the background writings about how you want to set your superhero adventure. So is it four color? Is it a bit more gritty? Is it you know what, what does it look like? And there's these kind of like three different categories you can apply the levers up and down on to get the sort of game that you want. Loads of really good advice and there and stuff like that. So probably as an adjunct to the one role engine mechanics, I probably add that. Generally, the art is very good as well. Like in Rain, um, there's kind of a style where you make Arabic writing look like the thing that it is, mm. which Dennis Detwiller did, I think it was. Oh, no, Daniel Solis it was in in that particular book in uh, Rain. So there's the, the word for elephant looks like an elephant and that kind of thing and really stylized. Uh, They've all got a unique style, all look great. And all the supporting writing that goes with the system is really good as well. So, yeah, get on the internet and buy some of that stuff. All good. Cool. Okay, right. So, uh, taking it right up to date then. Um, not too many D10s in this one. Uh, quite a specific mechanic from me next. It's the Escalation Dice, which is used in 13th Age, which is one of those fancy oh, yeah. role-playing games. Um, um, I'll explain how it works, and uh, then we'll take it from there. So, the Escalation Dice is simply the biggest D6 you can get your hands on. Um, something about the size of an orange usually works best, and everybody likes getting new dice. And what you do is you're having a fight. You're having a combat, probably in a D&D game of your choice. Um, but it specifically comes out in 13th Age, which is uh, another iteration of, of classic D&D. And what happens is you plop down the escalation dice on round two of your combat with the number one showing on it. And for that second round of combat, all of the players get plus one to all of their attack rolls because the situation has escalated and then on the following round you turn the dice over to number two and then number three and then number four and then the dice basically escalates over the course so that by round seven if you get that far players are adding six to their attack rolls so far so ordinary what's good about that then i'll tell you what's good about that if you've played any kind of hit point attrition based role-playing game at any point in the last 40 years you will have encountered the concept of running around after the goblin that's only got one leg left and it being <laughs> your turn in the initiative and you're going oh god i just shoot it can i just shoot it and even the best among us who love narrating the the swing of the sword and the the fizz of the arrow and the crackle of the magic bolt after seven rounds of that it can get pretty tedious so fights in D do tend to drag on a little bit sometimes and the outcome is never in doubt, but nobody ever runs away and nobody ever surrenders. So the escalation dice tends to accelerate the combat towards the end. That's quite clever. And then the other thing it does is it means that people, players particularly, don't just nova stuff on round one. They jockey for position a little bit because they know if they wait for just the right time, they might get the bonus they need to really make that big spell land exactly where it needs to. Because in the first round of combat, the players are probably at a slight disadvantage. In round two, they're about average, and then they start to get better and better. So it puts just another little layer of tactics into the game at just the point it needs it. So it's a mechanical solution to a real problem, as opposed to a mechanical solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. See gumshoe games. So <laughs> I quite like that it's, it's designed to get something achieved and achieve it, it does. And the other thing I really love about it is just how portable it is. So I, I've now explained how it works. And if you didn't know how that worked, well, happy days, you do now. You could probably port that into almost any game that you have that involves combat at any level. It's so modular, so takeawayable, and also it just puts an extra layer of design space into the game. 
So in 13th age, you might have characters that can accelerate that escalation and tip it over another number, or they can delay it, or you can have stuff that keys off of odd numbers, or as has been used beautifully in design since, you can use it to become like a clock for your traps. So you can have rooms that are filling with water and they go up with the escalation dice. And when the escalation dice reaches literally a tipping point, then everything goes mad or it can be ticking bombs. It just adds a timing mechanic into other parts of the game. And it's the whole mechanic can be explained in a few sentences, but just runs through a game and adds a complete new level to whatever it is you're doing. And I think it's genius. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, I agree. I like it a lot. Um, I'm kind of reminded of various TV scenes and movies and things, so I'll just pick one. Uh, but in The Last Samurai, if you remember that film, yep. there's kind of a bit where Tom Cruise is sat around watching some no theatre happen uh, and then loads of ninjas attack. Uh, and at the start, they're everywhere. The samurai get their ass kicked. Tom Cruise is like, oh shit, this is all bad. Uh, but as it goes on, he starts to get better and better and starts to kill people. And, you know, things happen in the scene like a little boy gets thrown and that powers him up a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And then it, as it gets to the end, there's no one chasing the last ninja round trying to finish him off. There's just this cut point where you see about five of them all die all at once and the samurai all shout out in victory. And you go, yes, good. That's the good end to a fight. Hmm. And I think you're right. The escalation does that sort of thing where things start to get more and more brutal from the player's point of view in terms of dishing out stuff. And then they win and go, hurrah. And they're really high fives, and I think it really does lend itself to that. And you're right; it's that clever bit of using the um, mechanic in terms of like on odd numbers or even numbers, you can do something, which allows certain abilities to fire, which can just make it a bit more interesting for a D and D type game. Mm. Whereas instead of just having I'm a fire, so I'll use my hit it with this axe thing, it might be I'll hit it with my axe. Except this round now, because I've hit a three on the escalation dice, it means I can do this thing instead. So I'll shout and intimidate lots of people, or whatever it might be. So it allows the probably games that get a little bit dull to have you allow you to have extra abilities that you use at certain points and make it a bit more interesting. So I like all that. Correct. Mm. Good. And one that I didn't one that I didn't have on my list, but I'll mention it now because you've reminded me, um, is the tension die in Dead of Night. Oh yeah. Which is a horror game for all kinds of horror games, depending on which one you want. You can pull levers and alter things, but in the centre of the table, if you can afford it, you have a massive D twenty that ticks up with tension. And as the survivors or the players spend survival points to do things or to prevent damage or whatever else, that ticks up all the time. And there is a literal feel of the tension of it as it starts going up because you know that bad things can happen. And indeed, as it hits 5, 10, 15, there's certain things the GM can then do to you because the tension's reached a certain level. And the GM can reduce that point to mess with people's dice rolls and make them fail when they think they escaped the vampire. And you go, oh, well, no, I'll just spend two tension points. And no, you didn't. It's got you. Now what are you going to do? Um, so again, that's another... Um, physical embodiment if you've seen something happening in the game and then you can use it mechanically as well so another good use of that sort of die in the middle of the table doing something yeah good 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 yeah i like that game i've not played that game very much actually but yeah it it's um it's i think it's always good to have something on the table even if you don't play around the table physically which happens less and less these days with hangout games or just you know chilling out in armchairs and stuff it's quite nice to have a focal point and it's, it's unlikely, uh, more and more perhaps, with certain sorts of games, that it's going to be finely painted miniatures on gridded maps, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, whether it be a Jenga tower or a big fat D20, it's kind of nice to have a focal point. So they're good for that. Right, I could go. Yeah. So I've got two left. Have you got two left as well? I'm not keeping track. I think I have. Yeah, yeah. We haven't stepped on each other's toes yet either. So this is incredible. So go for it, mate. Um, I'm going to mention Mouse Guard. Oh, okay. Which people might not think would be my on my list for anything, to be honest, because it involves being anthropomorphic mice and worrying about whether the weasels are going to get you, which doesn't normally sit into my grimdark universe, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but I, I like it for a couple of reasons. Um, it's sort of burning wheel, but I think Luke Crane um, rings, you know, pulls out a handful of hair any time somebody says it's burning wheel, because it's not, it's Mouse Guard, it's different. But it's very similar in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's quite similar. So, mate. Burning Wheels, one of the, yeah, yeah. Burning Wheels, one of those games where you need everybody to know it, including the players. And I'm sure if you go to a, a Burning Wheel convention where everybody knows the game, it's absolutely awesome. But dropping new players into it in a convention, it's quite hard work. Mm. Burning Empires is even worse. Oh god! 
However, I think Mouse Guide's quite accessible. So you roll some D6s, and if you get a 4+, plus, it's a success, and that sort of thing. And that, that's the kind of core of it. Um, but when you get into a, a fight, for example, or an extended conflict of some sort, um, you, you kind of get together a bunch of cards, and you pick out your next three actions in one go, if you know what I mean. So in a fight, you can like defend, you can uh, maneuver, you can attack, whatever. This I think there's about four or five different options. But you pick which three you're going to do, and then put them in order and put them on the table. And then the GM's doing the same, playing it hard. And then you sort of compare them. And if you're doing one against another, there's certain advantages or disadvantages depending on what you've picked. But I like the fact that you kind of plan out your fight first and then start to reveal stuff and see what happens afterwards. And you've no idea what your opponent's going to do. And you just kind of get a double guess or find out, you know, pick a best option and hope they don't pick the one that overwrites yours, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, along with rolling dice so that that stuff's quite good again it's using cards it's quite tactile there's something on the table every crane's over to see what's been flipped over um, and the other bit about it is if you want to roll um, your nature for something so being mice you're very good at hiding or that sort of thing going down holes running away being a bit cowardly then you get a big bunch of dice you can roll for that and it's when you're going against your nature that, that, that it's a risk um, so there's a whole thing around there about uh, your mice or your characters trying to be against what the nature of their the sense is. There's a bit of a mechanical lever to make you play to your nature and mm-hmm. not be heroic. But as players generally, you want to be the heroic mouse that does something cool and interesting. So you've kind of got to fight against the mechanical benefit you could get by not doing that. So I like the top tension in the game that a lot of games make players lean towards what's mechanically efficient or best for them. And I like in this game that what's mechanically best often is what you want to do and you you sort of like as a player as well as a character making a sacrifice to make those those moves if you know what I mean or to, to mm. perform those actions which I think is a nice change from the usual of you know what's going to get me the best bonus it's more about what do I want to do for my character for the for the rest of the party who do I want to say you know and I know it's, I'm going to suffer for it but I'm going to do it anyway so that the theme of what the players are doing mirrors what the characters are doing if you know what I mean mm-hmm. yeah the, the thing I know most about my mouse guard is it was it was for me. It was one of the first of those games where, where people took it and immediately started to make it into other games immediately because yeah, the yeah. underlying system is really rock solid, like powered by the apocalypse, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and clearly, not not so many people wanted to play mice with little cloaks on. Although I would, I quite like to play it straight. I like to play most games straight first up anyway. And um, yeah. it's it's got plenty of that grim dark in it, hasn't it? If you're a mouse and you're being confronted with a snake, um, that's <laughs> That's that's not good times. Not good times for little mousy or a bear. Christ, do you get bears in it? That's on bear action, mate. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. Okay. Or a wild owl. Yes. Yeah. Terrifying. Um, But no, I really like it from a systems point of view and everything else. And uh, it's good looking game, isn't it? Really good looking. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. And and plenty of um, more kit on the table. I think there's a there's been a beautiful box come out. That's got like little uh, miniatures in it and figurines, that kind of stuff too. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, the old tea-stained bit of paper, which we've been mucking around with for forty years, sort of came into its own in there because <laughs> it just looks dead good. Yeah, cool. It really did. Uh, if you've not seen the um, the graphic novels, well worth picking up because they're especially if you've got kids, maybe mm-hmm. not too young because you know <laughs> mice might get eaten, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely worth it. And beautiful things, and the the role playing game itself's got lots of that art in it. So yeah, it's it's a good coffee table book if nothing else. Cool. Okay. Right. So uh, into my top two then, man. Um, okay. I seem to have gone quite granular with my stuff. I've gone down to like individual bits of rule, and you're you're bringing the entire game systems to the party, which is cool. Um, so I've got another little bit of grainy rules mechanic here. It is uh, disadvantage stroke advantage, as seen in fifth edition D anD. All right, the world's simplest rule um, in one of the world's most convoluted games. So, <laughs> advantage or disadvantage at its core is really simple. Uh, if you have an advantage in a situation because you've got one narratively, um, or you might have an ability, or you might just be, I suppose a specific example would be leap from hiding and ambush someone. So that's an advantage, right? It just means that instead of rolling one d20, you roll two and take the best. And on the flip side, if you're at a disadvantage, uh, say you might have sand thrown in your eyes, so you're a bit blinded in the situation, you would roll two d20 and take the lower. That's so simple. 
it's so simple and so intuitive and just works so well and the effect it has on d20 games is to get rid of at least six pages of modifiers which third edition had just crept entire books out of modifiers um that's a slight exaggeration because it was never that bad but there was plenty to be had and it just junks all of that immediately because advantage disadvantage doesn't stack by the way so you can't get four advantages and one disadvantage to give you a net advantage of three. That's all way too complicated. You've either got one or you've got the other or you've got neither. And it's really simple. Um, and in the game itself, it's just so obvious how it works. You roll 2d20, you're looking for the better one or the worse one. And it really does feel like an advantage or a disadvantage. And it's really, really clever in the it's one of the. You remember the the example I gave you earlier of the person I teach to play D and D. They roll a seventeen. I say, "What did you get?" And they go seventeen. I go, "What about your modifier?" Two hours in. Yeah. This system prevents most of that happening when it gets fiddly, because if you forget that you've got advantage in a situation and you just roll your one D twenty, you can just roll a second one, and that happens <laughs> so often. Or you might forget that you've got disadvantage, so you go, oh, "I've got an 18. And you go, oh, but don't forget you're a disadvantage. You don't have to like start from scratch or anything. You just roll a second d20. And it happens yeah. so often. And it opens up another one of those rules layers, a bit like the escalation dice does. So, you know, having advantage is a good thing. And it means that there's a design space there for gaining it and a design space for passing it around where Savage Worlds might use bennies and common bonds to sort of like move the luck around the table. You can use inspiration and it becomes experience as well. And you can, if you give someone else advantage, you might have the sort of character that does that, a commander type or a leader type. You can physically hand over a d20, which is quite a nice thing to do. And it lasts with them until they roll it and they just roll it back to you. Um, moving stuff around the table in real life like that is quite tactile, which seems to be coming up a lot in the rules choices we're making. And the best thing about escalation for me is, not escalation, sorry, the best thing about this particular mechanic is it's so easy it makes it feel like it's been in gaming forever. And I don't think D&D 5th Edition was the first to do it. I know that it's been used in a couple of small press games prior to that, but D&D 5th Edition made it big. And it's come into pretty much every clone of D&D since. It's one of those rules that even the old school guys absolutely love. Um, Mm. And it's been factored into everything. And it just feels like it's been around since 1974. And it just hasn't at all. But it's, it's so simple, and you can use it in almost every other game that you ever play. And it's really intuitive. It's actually elegant, which is often a misapplied word. I know that does your nut in, but in this case, it actually is. Um, the yeah. only thing unwieldy about it is it doesn't have a really snappy name, and it's, it's the advantage-disadvantage rule, which just doesn't trip off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> it's still the <D&D>. indie. <laughs> Yeah, it's difficult to write Uh, down. I think that's it. I think Cathelia Seventh is a similar thing. I'm struggling to remember now because I went through so many playtests. I can't remember what the actual final rules were. But that's yeah, you roll an extra turns dice or not. Um, Mm. So yes, no, I I agree. It's uh, anything that's easy for players to understand is great. Uh, And again, rolling more dice is better generally. But even when you've got a disadvantage dice, you kind of like rolling an extra d20. Start off yeah, and get to roll with one d20, and it still feels good. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you kind of got that little bit of hope when there's one eighteen, the one still rolling, that it'll still be high enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all good. I, I endorse your uh, your love of that, Bess. Well done. Cool. Right, that brings you to your last choice, I think. It does. Um, the only one I've got left is uh, the One Ring, which has got many mechanics in it. Um, mm. So I probably need to get a little bit granular with it and not go through them all. So I think we've mentioned before there's stuff like a great journey mechanic so that when you travel through Mirkwood, it feels really hard work and lots of things can happen to you, very bad things normally. Uh, so that's good because it you know, reflects the source material and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the fighting's a little bit abstract uh, and you kind of like work out not how far you are from your enemy, but how hard you want to get stuck in and how much danger you want to put yourself in and that sort of thing. So that's all good as well. Um, the bit that I was going to mention that I'm not sure if I have or not yet is hate and hope mechanics. Mm-hmm. So from the player's point of view, they have hope, which can give them bonuses to things when they spend a point of hope. 
Um, so they get, used, get to use a favoured attribute rather than the normal value. So it'll be like plus one, plus two, plus three higher, something like that. And it'll mean the difference between failure and success quite often. Otherwise, you wouldn't spend that whole point. Um, another good bit about it uh, is that you have a collective fellowship pool of hope you can use as well. Uh, and it's got a neat little thing that if you've got hobbits in your fellowship, you get an extra one for each hobbit you've got because they're just lucky. You know, rub the hairy feet or whatever and get an extra bonus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the players kind of moderate that out amongst themselves. So you kind of have to ask your fellowship if it's all right to go and nick from it. Hardly ever anybody says no, but sometimes you get someone greedy. And it's a nice little way of saying you can take one if you want, but you take shadow with it as well, which can lead to, you know, you going off the rails a bit, as we've seen in the movies and books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all good. But I like the asymmetric nature of the One Ring quite a lot, in that the GM's got different rules than the players have. And he has hate points, so he's particularly uh, noisome orcs or chieftains or that sort of thing. will have a bunch of hate they can spend to trigger their monstrous abilities and do bad things to you. So that's another good mechanic, that you're spending a different resource than the players are. And I just love saying, I'm going to spend a point of hate to do monstrous damage to you. <laughs> Look on the player's face, but... It feels like if you're playing Sauron's minions, that's the sort of thing you should be doing. They should hate, be hateful, or, you know, it's just good language to use what you're doing, and it's good that it works in a different way. Uh, and when you're in a fight, for example, um, the dice have uh, some symbols on them. And if you get a Gandalf rule, rune, sorry, you automatically succeed. It doesn't matter what all the other dice are, you've just succeeded because the light of Gandalf shone on you. That's good, that works. And if you get an Eye of Sauron, it's really bad for you. Um, as players you can kind of aim for cold shots and things like that um, as a GM you can't but if the players rolled an Eye of Sauron when it was their go you kind of get free cold shots or free special abilities like bows and arrows so I like the fact that a lot of it's out there from what the player does can then impact them so they know they've rolled an Eye of Sauron and know something's bad coming it doesn't happen on their turn they've got to wait a bit but then they can see it coming down the pipe if you know what I mean hmm. They're sort of like trying to get across the river when they can see the black riders coming up behind them and that sort of thing. So um, lots of good language, and I like the asymmetric nature, as I mentioned about three times now, so I'll stop using that word. But <laughs> the fact that the GM has his own mechanics that he can use, and it just, they haven't thought about it so that the GM and the players have to be fair and use the same set of rules. Because why should they? They're playing different games from different angles, so they should all have their own set of stuff they can do. Uh, and I mean, hate and hope as the two opposing angles of how the game's played, I think really fits in with the theme and uh, yeah, works really well. And it's a game I've never played. Not once. Really need to rectify that. Oh, mate, we should do, yeah. Yeah, I ne- never hear a bad word about it. And you, you sing its praises all the time, mate. And it does sound really, really good. Um, I played a bit of Merp back in the day. Tolkien's not massively my thing. Uh, but I love mechanics and setting when they're blended together as well as you say they do. So, yeah, I need to get yeah. that played. And to sort of tie into the escalation bit, I think it's slightly different. Um, but one of the things that in one of the source books is that whenever an Eye of Sauron's rolled, kind of like the background radiation ticks up, if you know what I mean? So there's mm-hmm. there's more attention being paid to the party for their stuff they're doing. They're going around killing orcs or making people better or you know, taking the poison out of wells and things. Mm. The the nemesis was going to keep his eye on him a bit more, or his agents certainly are. So there's every time that Eye of Sauron goes on, there's a count goes up in the background like a doom counter for when he's going to send something bigger and nasty to sort you out because you appear to be unpicking all these plans. He's not happy about it. <laughs> so there's the, it's not visible on the table like the escalation die or the tension mechanics and all that, but the players all know that it's happening in the background and can kind of feel this creeping doom of coming along sort of thing. Is the more times they roll that Eye of Sauron, the more attention the bad guys are paying to him, which I quite like as well. That's a neat mechanic they've added in. Hmm. Nice. Okay, so uh, my last pick, uh, I need to take you back, way back, to 1994, I'm going to say. Something like that, okay. anyway. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because we haven't talked about D10s for a while, so it's time to get our World of Darkness on. Um, yeah, now I'm going to get a bit more specific than just the World of Darkness, uh, because... Uh, much as I much as I quite like the World of Darkness rules, I don't think they're going to get into the top five of anybody's personal rules <laughs> mechanics. <laughs> but I thought they were right. Well, there's there's stuff about it. Like. <laughs> well, I know. Yeah, and that was the only problem. Um, but my my very fave of the World of Darkness games, at least theoretically, uh, was Wraith the Oblivion, um, which is a game in which you play ghosts. Uh, spooky. Um, there was loads of good stuff about that. 
just loads. Uh, but the system bit that I really liked about it, the unique piece about Wraith that wasn't really replicated in the other World of Darkness games, or many other games ever, really, was that each player had like its little dark side, um, kind of like a mixture of its conscience and just like a, a sort of a, an evil persona called its shadow. So you were busy trying to like get by being a spook, which was hard enough, uh, but you also had you know, this internal monologue going on from the nasty side of your personality, which was basically poking you and prodding you and completely tempting you all the time. And the genius of that was that that bit was played by another player around the table. So it's an emotional game anyway, because it's all about that kind of stuff. And then you take it off out of the GM's hands and you put some real nastiness into the hands of the person sitting opposite you or directly on your left or could be your partner. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was, all kinds of fun could be had because your shadow, so you're playing, you're playing your own character and someone else's shadow simultaneously. So you get double the exposure to the game straight away, which is really clever. So you don't have too much of the whole sitting out, watching everything else happen, which, which, could, which could happen quite a lot in World of Darkness games. Um, and you got to basically be a bit evil, which everybody likes to do. And uh, you got to actually have real support for this as well. So you weren't just sitting there heckling, which could easily happen. So you got to offer shadow dice to the to the good guy player, essentially the good guy player. And they get rolled as normal dice, but they cost a point of angst. That's how you know you're in the 90s, because it was called angst. <laughs> and <laughs> you could spend really your angst. Oh, my word, it was bleak. Um, <laughs> there was the only bit of fun to be had in Wraith. Really, the only bit of fun was the fact the first edition glowed in the dark. Uh, so, <laughs> And I mean fun in the, in the literal sense, because it was a brilliant game to play. It was very, very evocative, and loads of good stuff could come from it. And that particular mechanic really, really got got things quite not necessarily heated but it got you it got you put a hot under the collar perhaps um and it was you know that's very different from a lot of the games that were kicking around i mean we've mentioned other games already from that era like yeah deadlands and legend of the five rings in which all of them although they've got supernatural overtones they're not bleak games even deadlands which has got quite a sort of dark undercurrent and it didn't get as bleak as rafe on its best days so i really like that bit and what i like most about it is it was really unique. I can't think of many other games where you get to do that even now. It's really become a bit of a legacy mechanic and it wasn't used really in the other World of Darkness games and, and could have been quite easily, I think. But it's um, can you think of any other games where you get to play two characters simultaneously and you're kind of like trying to help and hurt the party at the same time? Yes. Oh, good. That's helpful. What's that? Monsters... Uh, most of the childish things, which I mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, apart from that one. Yeah, obviously. And he's got his monster, <laughs> so that. One roll um, engine as uh, well. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I get like, do I get double points? He's like Scrabble. You do, um, yeah. Yeah, cool. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's other things as well. So I I'm not sure if they're in the books, but I've, I've definitely played things like Monster Hearts, some of the small press stuff, where there's been an NPC comes onto the scene and the the MC says, oh, you know, who wants to play this character then, and mm. you know, gets other people to jump in. Not quite in that tied together way of the the wraith way of doing it with the shadow, but um, definitely in the small press world, I think it's still alive and well that you let uh, players play a number of characters, for example. Mm. Uh, so that's there. But yeah, when Wraith came out, it was very ahead of its time. It was a new idea then, and, and yeah, uh, it was a shame that it didn't come with a warning of "Don't be a dick" uh, written in large <laughs> letters over it because. <laughs> That's the danger with having that mechanic, and you, you you can end up with too many people trying to play the shadow all the time and forget they're supposed to be playing the wraith bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but very interesting, and it, it played uh, with a little bit of um, grown-up attitude, I guess. I'm trying to think of the word, but yeah, just a, a little bit of maturity. Then uh, yeah, really, really good, and, and as you say, back in nineteen ninety-four, I don't even thought of that. Andy. I don't think no. anyway. Trying no. to think of anything at that time that was similar. Hmm. No, it's, so, it yeah, was bonkers then. It's bonkers now. <laughs> Health and safety, <laughs> yeah. different times. You wouldn't be allowed to get away with it now. <laughs> You'd have to write out some contracts. Very good. Well, there's not enough risk assessment in games anyway. <laughs> 
Or too much when players plan for three hours before <laughs> probably. kicking the door. <laughs> yeah, probably. Cool. So that's made me want to play about, well, five more games than I did an hour ago. So that's good news. Awesome stuff. Yeah, um, I've just got one honourable mention to kind of mm-hmm. finish off with. I couldn't bring it in because it's got too many flaws for me, but Feng Shui or Feng Shui or Feng Shui, oh. or however you want to pronounce it, has got really cool stuff. But again, it's really awkward and sometimes doesn't work as well as you think it should, having read it. But um, definitely worth checking out if you haven't done. Feng Shui 2 is out on the shelves now, big fat book. Mm. Some lovely, beautiful, full-page, full-colour archetypes you can just pick up and play straight away and pick some options off. Um, but it's got a shot counter so you roll your initiative and get a number say 13 and then to do something costs 3 shots so you'll go on 13, 10, 7, 4 and 1 for example so everybody gets a bunch of times during a sequence or a keyframe, well, I can't remember what they call it in the new edition um, which is good in principle and there's certain things you do like if you dodge you, you add to your shot cost or certain actions you can do quicker if you've got certain abilities and there's all the monkeying about you can do with it which is great the trouble with it is if you get a variety of initiatives and someone's got 15 and someone's got 6 it means the one with 15 goes loads of times and the one with 6 doesn't get a go quite often so that's where it falls down so it's my honourable mention because uh, there are other bits of the mechanics I won't go into now because we're, we're over an hour as it is uh, but the, there's some really good ideas but then there's just occasions where they don't quite work but I think it's mm-hmm. one of those games that's good to have a look at and have a play around with anyway just because it's good fun cool okay mate yeah I mean I had, a, I had a few bubbling under probably game systems the rest of it no such thing as a perfect game um, but there's the definitely bits that you can pull out of even even poor games have usually got a little gem hidden in there somewhere um, and even the best of games have got something that makes you go oh I don't know about that um, but luckily everything's very hackable so you know that's a good thing too so uh, I wonder what sort of game we could make out of our 10 mechanics today <laughs> probably riffs <laughs> that's what it would be <laughs> but better than riffs obviously well that would be difficult to achieve but sure okay, I'll, I'll buy it <laughs> <laughs> cool well I think that's just about us done for today so thanks for listening again boys, girls and others out there uh, if you've got a favourite system you think we've missed or something cool we should try do drop us a line uh, thanks again to the D20 Future Show for dropping us a quick note on the old Twitters and giving us the idea for the topic uh, if you've got a good idea for something you'd like us to talk about just drop us a line on email via the forums, via G+, on Twitter any other way you can get hold of us come around and buy us a pint and uh, we'll give a good old natural about whatever you want Cool. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye. Ta-da.